HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at cheesestateuniversity.com. Welcome to Life's a Banquet! Nope. (laughs) Leave it in. Welcome to Life's a Banquet! A podcast about all things edible, spreadable, and horrible with me, your host, William Shatner from Star Trek. (laughs) They know who William Shatner is, don't they? (laughs) They mean Mike Sala, the one person that listens to the show. definitely knows who William Shatner is. And Kelly listens. Kelly definitely knows who William Shatner is, too, because she's my age. Very young. Sup, Kelly, you baby. <laughs> also, I am Nicole, and look, once again, Zara is violating the rules of no singing on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that was more of an excited announcement than a song, don't you think? Mm, sure. A jingle? You think it was a song? Yeah. yeah that I, was a jingle jangle. It felt like we were beginning a Broadway play. <laughs> well, maybe we are. That's my lifelong dream to be a Broadway singer. If I was going to go real Broadway voice, I could do it. And I feel like I really missed my calling in life because I'm very good at that. Yeah. It's never too late. That's true. Uh, it might be too late for me, though, because recently my back has been going out and I feel like you need a good back for Broadway. Is there water running in the background? Unfortunately, yes. That's the... <laughs> That's my dishwasher spewing water out (laughs) into the sink. Don't worry about it. Pretend like you don't hear that. Look, I've got to clean the dishes, and it had to be now when we were doing the podcast, but it's almost over. Shut up! (laughs) Shut up! Don't abuse it when it becomes sentient. It's going to come after you, man. (laughs) What's going on with you? Oh, nothing. Just enjoying the 42-degree rainy, windy weather here in sunny Indianapolis. Nice. I also, You're wearing a turtleneck. It's freezing. I have to wear a turtleneck. I turned my heat up last night, which is, you know, expensive, but I had to do it. It's so cold. Yeah, it was a rainy weekend here in the Northeast as well. And as I was mentioning before the podcast, I like a rainy weekend because for many reasons. One, low expectations. I'm somebody who feels like I always need to be out of the house doing something. And a rainy weekend gives me an excuse to just stay inside, which sometimes I really need to recharge. 
Secondly, I find, I don't love spring, as some of you may know. Spring is my least favorite season. It does. Yeah, it sucks, right? You also don't like spring, right? Yeah, because like two weeks ago, it was in the 80s, and now this is happening. Why would anyone like this? Why would anyone like this? I don't know, but I just also generally don't like the vibe of spring. I find it very depressing. <laughs> it's my most depressed time of year. Same for me. Spring. Yeah, yeah I'm also very depressed good. in spring. It's like the last little bit of like no vitamin D. So then my body is like, oh, well, it was summer a couple weeks ago, so I'm ready to go. And now it's like freezing into my body. I was like, no, we're staying inside for the rest of the year. Right. And there's like a coziness to winter. I'm not really a winter person, but there is like some kind of coziness to winter where it's like, okay, this is like kind of hibernating. We'll make soup, you know, but like, Mm -hmm. what do you do with yourself in spring? It's so confusing. It feels tumultuous. Something like bad is always happening in my life in the spring. I just, I don't know. It's just not for me. Also, you don't know how to dress because then when you walk, you go to work in the morning, it's hot. When you come home, it's cold and you get sweaty. Exactly. And the sneezing. And, but my biggest issue with spring in my neighborhood is that like all of the kind of like rich, boring families are just acting so extra in spring. Like just like (laughs) so like the chaotic energy of spring is like unparalleled, at least in, you know, Brownstone, Brooklyn. And I just like, I cringe at it. And I don't mean to be a negative Nancy. I don't mean to bring this podcast down right out of the gate, but I'm going to. Mm. And it's because of all of you fuckers around here planting your flowers and letting your kids bite strangers on the street. It's your fault. Yeah. They just let them out of the house and they run out and bite people. That's very spring-like activity. Exactly. The children biting. Um, what's What else is going on other than it being hailing and cold there? Um, so... The other thing I was talking about was we had a, our restaurant kind of had a thing called Ramp Fest, which was like a charity thing, but it was outdoors yesterday. And so, you know, they just thought it would be kind of spring-like because it was in late April, the last day of April even. And it ended up getting freezing cold and hailing and everyone was like holding onto the tents that would make sure they didn't blow away. And like hail was just like spraying all over all of the ramp food that they made for the ramp festival. And I doubt it was, I mean, it's, you know, very sad for them because they were cold, but it's also kind of funny in all the Instagram stories. It's hilarious. There's nothing funnier than a ramp fest being ruined. In my do opinion. they still have ramps in New York? Like do people still go nuts for those? Yeah, people are fucking cuckoo for ramps. And, like, you know, a ramp is delicious. I love a good alien. There's nothing wrong with a ramp except for the price. Yeah. The price of ramps is insufferable. Is it? Well, the people here go get their own from the wilderness. That's much better. I mean, there's a couple issues with ramps. One is that they're terribly expensive. The second issue is that they're incredibly dirty, right? Mm, yes. Well, you're not supposed to pull them out. You're supposed to sniff them off the top because it takes them forever to regrow. Okay. Hello. <laughs> oh, interesting. I've never forged a ramp because I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I did something like that. <laughs> so chefy. Um, I'm, I'm going yeah. forging for ramps this weekend. I simply can't. Well, if someone holds you at gunpoint and makes you forage for ramps, just remember to cut the tops off. Don't pull them out because it takes them like years to regrow. From you hear that, everyone? Don't yank those ramps. Snip them. <laughs> Don't yank those ramps. You just snip them, snip them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I've never foraged for ramps. Um, I saw a tiny bundle of ramps in 
Union Market the other day and they were like $13 for <laughs> like four ramps. I was just like, this is becoming untenable. This also, life. like, what is the deal, as Jerry Seinfeld would say? Your favorite not, comedian. Not Jerry Springer, who I almost said. <laughs> R.A.P. Um, but like, what? why do you think it is that ramps are so still a thing, like a big thing? It's yeah, not like endured. Like asparagus doesn't really, I mean, people get excited about asparagus, but it's not on the level of the ramps. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you why, because they're not available all the, right? There's not only did they become a trendy vegetable, uh-huh. much like the Brussels sprout, or I mean, I know this isn't a, a vegetable, but like bacon <laughs> or like whatever, kale, <laughs> avocado toast, all the other food trends. Um, but they're like hard to get. So you can only get them once a year. So by the time that you like, you know, you forget about them and then they become cool again. Whereas a Brussels sprout, you know, commodity Brussels sprouts are available all year round. So it's easy to become sick of them, sick of them and laugh at them and make them the butt of your joke. But I just feel like, you know, real good in-season asparagus is similar, right? It's only a short period of time and they're available. Yes, absolutely. And That's yet, true. Nobody's and, and same making asparagus butter pizza that's true same with asparagus same with uh brussels sprouts right really are only available in the fall but commodity asparagus and commodity brussels sprouts are available all year round like ramps you are, i mean you really can only get in the spring well it's because they're hard to cultivate but i feel like as an american country we can definitely make hot house ramps go out there and do it somebody hurry up yeah that's right <laughs> i don't know i mean i, I like I like a ramp. I, I don't want to be cynical about ramps because I think they're actually very tasty. Again, the only issue I have with ramps is the price of ramps. <laughs> I just think that they're just a little bit overhyped. That's all. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, you can achieve some of this pleasure through like a scallion or even onion grass that grows right in your very own front yard. My dad has onion grass in his yard and I ate some the other day. It was great. You did? What did you do with it? You put it in a salad or you just nibbled it like I just ate it in front of my dad to shock him. (laughs) And then you started throwing up in the lawn like a dog does when he eats grass? No, it's not poisonous. Well, onion grass was great. I remember when we were kids finding it. It would feel so exciting to get that stinky patch of grass. (laughs) Uh, Apparently there is a similar looking grass that is poisonous, but as long as it smells like an onion, you can eat it. But that looks like an onion, but doesn't smell like an onion. Don't eat it. It's poison. That goes for anything, not just grass, right? <laughs> just like if it looks like an onion, but it doesn't smell like an onion. Even a big onion, a red yeah. onion. Run away. Right? Yes. Yeah, run from it. At top throw speeds. It, <laughs> throw it at somebody and get the hell out of there. Nicole, it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded. Do you have any updates on America's worst back, Ben Affleck back? No, there's not much going on. It just says that um, J-Lo had an emotional transition when she moved in with Ben Affleck. That's all we've got. There's no other updates. I wonder what kind of emotion she was feeling. She was probably Greed. accepting <laughs> the fact that she's going to have to go to Dunkin' Donuts all the time. <laughs> A glazed emotion. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, yeah, they got nothing for us right now. The only thing that's happened since we last recorded is that Jerry Springer died. <clears throat> that's and a bummer. Jerry Seinfeld lived. 
Jerry Lewis, the jury's still out. We don't know what happened to that Jerry. <laughs> the Jerry's still out. Right in. <laughs> the Jerry <laughs> is out on that Jerry. Tom and Jerry, he must be very old by now. It was Tom. Jerry was the mouse. The bird. Uh, yeah, the Tomcat. That makes sense, right? The mouse. Right, but Tom would be the cat because of Tomcat. Tom was the cat. Jerry was the mouse. It's yes. a funny name for a mouse. Who names a mouse Jerry? Am I right? A lot of people probably after that show came out. My Aunt Susan and my Uncle David used to have a dog named Adam. <laughs> I love human names for dogs. Me too. Like Adam? Sharon? Sharon? Yeah. Did Elizabeth? you have a dog named like Kelly or something? Michelle. My first dog ever was named oh. Michelle. She was a mean dog. <laughs> you don't like her. And we're pretty sure the neighbors poisoned her because she barked nonstop. I had a dog that was uh, also poisoned by the neighbors. That's a fucked up thing to do, right? That's a yeah, bad neighbor. But Michelle and I were not friends, so I think she deserved to die. Just kidding, everyone. <laughs> and you hope she burns in hell. She, she did bite me a lot when I was like five years old. So it's not, it's not really not her fault though. My parents did not train her. They just kept her tied up in the backyard constantly torturing the neighbors. That was a very like, um, that's a lost art of how to mistreat a dog that was very popular when we were growing up. And I'm sure well before that, not so popular now, which is called leaving your dog outside all the time, no matter what, (laughs) no matter what in the house. Yeah. Never, even, ever letting it in the house. I don't know if she had a doghouse or anything. She was just out there all the time. She was like, you guys suck. I'm going to bite you. What's <laughs> the point, right, of having a dog if you don't ever want to, like, see it or spend any time with it? <laughs> I don't know. Just for protection? I mean, was Michelle a watchdog? I guess. She was pretty pissed off all the time, and she was always barking. So, like, if the dog is constantly barking, you're probably going to avoid walking into the yard that it's in, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> What a life, huh? Yeah. Michelle. Yeah, we had friends who had dogs like that growing up, and the dogs had this big, long run that went just, like, all yeah. along the, like, the backyard and mm-hmm. big fenced-in dog run. But, and like, but they were never, ever allowed in the house, and they were never washed or anything like that. They were terrible, smelly, awful beasts. <laughs> it's like yeah, animal well, abuse. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, don't do that. Folks, if you have a dog, let it inside. Pet it. Cuddle it. Kiss it. Rinse it off. Rinse it. Wash it. <laughs> Put it in the shower. Put it in um, the shower. So I have been doing a new exercise lately, which is slightly embarrassing and very bougie. I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast yet. It's called hot yoga. It's like regular yoga, but very hot. Hmm, it's very like 2012 of you. Ah, oh, it is so, so 2012. I put on my Belle and Sebastian and I <laughs> stretch out. Um, but you no, go to a yoga class. It seems so unlike you. I know. Well, I'm trying to be good to my body and brain. Uh, mm. It's a new thing I'm trying called uh, being nice to myself. So I went to my hot yoga class yesterday and I it made me realize that I have a curse. I've known this for a long time and, but it's just kind of really all coming together for me. I am cursed with always being next to the worst possible person anywhere that I go on a plane, on a train. Um, if I'm hitchhiking, yeah, (laughs) and definitely in a yoga class. So yesterday, first of all, I don't mean to be binary about this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I don't think men should be allowed in yoga classes straight 
cis men. I, I think they should be banned from yoga. It should be illegal. They're so annoying. They're always doing something disgusting. They're either farting or like over making like way too big of a deal about it. Um, <laughs> flailing. It's just stay out. I've never Is that been, okay to say? I don't think so, but I've never been to yoga class before. So I, maybe you're right. I don't know. Okay. I'm just going to say it. And I'm going to say it once again, straight cis men stay away from yoga. You're banned. Um, but this man, so it's a hot yoga class and it is very sweaty, but everybody puts like a towel down on their mat and, you know, it absorbs some of the sweat and makes the students slip around. But this guy who was next to me, he was bald, completely shiny, bald, really good at yoga. Like, you know, knew what he was doing, but he sweated so much, Nicole, that he was standing in like a puddle that you'd see like outside on the street. (laughs) Like a kid who was like put on their galoshes on a rainy day and like splash, splash, splash. I'm so cute. That's what this puddle was like. It was like an inch thick. Well, maybe half an inch thick. If you sweat more than other people, you're supposedly more evolved physically. Well, that's possible. And he seemed like a perfectly lovely guy, but he, there was so much sweat that every time he moved, it started to splash onto me. So I had to like (laughs) squish myself against the wall to like avoid it. It was like, it was so gross. And then I was like, you know, arguing with myself and like, just be cool. Like who cares? You're in a hot yoga class. So what someone's sweat gets on you. It's like finding a hair in your food. Like, yeah, it's kind of gross, but what's the difference? You know what I mean? Right. Like nothing's going to happen. Just take it out or shower and you get home. It's cool. But I couldn't be cool about it. And I kept kind of like moving away and I wanted to just be like, like say something like this is unacceptable. But then I realized the onus is on me to maybe not go to yoga class on Sundays. If I feel like I don't (laughs) want to get sweat splashed on me, but it was a lot of sweat. It was was like a gallon, over a gallon of sweat. I am not exaggerating. That is a lot of sweat. But, you know, other people's sweat is probably splashing on you, too. You just don't notice it as much. But less of it, for sure. Right? Like a (laughs) drop or two, not like a a wave of it. It was so much. Well, just avoid staying next to him next time. Well, you have to reserve your spot, which is the issue. Oh, interesting. That is bougie. (laughs) Yeah, it's so bougie. It's crazy. I don't know what what I'm doing. possessed you to start going to hot yoga? (sighs) Well, I went when I was in LA with my friend Nora, and I was like, I like this. Like, it feels good. Like, I mean, I do yoga at home, and I run, and I do all kinds of things, but there's something about, like, going to a class that, like, just feels like you've accomplished something. Sure. And I think, like, I've been working so much that I haven't really had the time to take care of myself the way I want. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah, I work out at work 10 hours a day, but I don't it's not do the same. anything. That's for me, you know, for yeah. just little old me. So I said, I'm doing this for me. And Nicole, this morning I went to class at 7.30 a.m. It was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't and nobody really sweated on me. I don't go for the early morning stuff like you do. I don't think that that's my vibe. I would go to like the 11.30 p.m. class. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was, I mean, I would also do that. But you know what the thing is with me? I start out the day amazing and I get progressively worse with every ticking second of the clock. So I need to like go <laughs> ahead and do second. everything immediately because as the seconds pass, I become less and less of a like the person I, I want to be. But when right. I'm right there in the morning, I'm great. So that's when I have to get all my stuff done. I see. Yeah, I'm the opposite. I like to wake up and I'm at my absolute worst. And then as the seconds tick by, I get better and better and better until, you know, I'm at my premium probably around, like I said, 1130 p.m. And then 
you are mm-hmm. a night owl. You thrive in the night. Now, I want to actually make a little bit, put an asterisk on this. I, I'm more of a pendulum. So I start <laughs> off great and I also end great. Where mm. I'm not good is dead center in the middle of the day. That's when I'm at my lowest. Yeah. And then I, I do two peaks. I peak morning and I peak night to crescendo up at the, from about 5 p.m. to maybe midnight or one when I go to sleep. Um, let's say right about now, recording time, I'm at my worst. So <laughs> that's why these episodes are so stupid and boring. <laughs> I know. This episode is pretty boring. I But I want to tell you guys, for me, my Christian, I'm just kidding. We're going to stop talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, hot yoga, hashtag, uh, whatever. Um. Zara picked the topic this week, but I don't hate it, so it's fine. Um, we decided World to, War One. <laughs> finally, World War One does come up in mine. Um, I'm doing. She wanted to do pasta, and I decided to do America's favorite chef, Chef Boyardi, because ah. that's actually how you pronounce his name. Boyardi. Ah, Boyardi. Yes. So, Chef, but I, it's. It's crazy because, you know, my whole life I've been calling him Chef Boyardee. And that would be French. That is not how you say his name. His name is pronounced Boyardee. Boyardee. Um, Mamma mia. And even, so if you look at old commercials, because he was in his own commercials, um, at the beginning, in like the 70s, he's like, it's me, Chef Boyardee. And then in the late 70s, his last commercial, he's like, it's me, Chef Boyardee. <laughs> so he like, even he... Just got swept up in the American pronunciation <laughs> of his Italian name. So huh. it's a sad story. Um, but it's actually a good story <laughs> um, if you think that dying wealthy is good. Um, <laughs> so Ettore Boyardi, a.k.a. Hector Boyardi, um, was born in Italy in 1897. His parents Whoa. were named Giuseppe and Maria and that's all we know about them. Uh, <laughs> by age 11, he was working at, as an apprentice, at an apprenticeship at La Croce Bianca, which is Jim Croce's Italian <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> that's a deep cut for all you folk fans out there. Um, <laughs> he, I have a Jim Croce record right here, actually, right next to me. I can funny. sense it. I can sense it. Yeah. Um, so he was an apprentice. He's only 11, though, so they just let him peel potatoes and take out the trash because what else could he possibly do? Um, then he went over to Paris and London. He was like, yo, teach me how to chef, and they were like, not a problem. Um, then on May 9th, 1914, he was 16 years old. He rolled into Ellis Island aboard the La Lorraine. I don't know why Wikipedia knows the name of the ship. I guess they went down and checked out the records. Um, he followed his brother, Paolo, to aka Paul later in life. <laughs> Paul Bordy. Yeah, to the Plaza Hotel in New York City, where he eventually worked his way up to head chef. Um, he was so good at chefing that he supervised the preparation of the homecoming meal provided by Woodrow Wilson at the White House for 2,000 returning soldiers from World War One, your favorite war. And that's the last time any of those soldiers got anything free from the government, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> he also <laughs> catered Woodrow Wilson's wedding. That's hard to say. That's a tongue twister, right? Wood- Woodrow yeah. Wilson's wedding? Wood- I can't even do it. Yeah, I did it once, and that's all I needed to do. 
then he up and moved to Cleveland. We don't really know why. Um, he decided to work at the Hotel Winton in Cleveland, which was like a big deal hotel. I mean, Cleveland, you know, was having a good time around this time. 1924. <laughs> I hate it, uh, Cleveland. Yes. He... Um, Met a pantry girl. Don't know what that is. Um, I'm assuming she just arranges all the stuff in the pantry. Uh, her name was Helen Robluski. They got married and she was like, you should open a restaurant, baby. And he was like, okay. So he opened his first restaurant, Il Giardano de Italy, which means the Garden of Italy. Nice. <laughs> and that was at East 9th and Woodlawn Avenue, or Woodland Avenue in Cleveland, Ohio. Either 1924 or 1926. Nobody... Really knows for sure. Um, I mean, that's not true, but I had two different articles say two different things. So mm. nobody knows. Uh, patrons were crazy for his spaghetti sauce. So they would come over and they'd be like, hey, can we have some of your spaghetti sauce just by itself to take home? And he was like, yes, I'll put it in this old milk bottle and I'll pass them oh. out to you people. I mean, he rinsed it out first, okay? Okay. But my thing is, don't you have to return the milk bottles to the milkman so we can refill them? Isn't that the whole thing? I think that was that was the case, yeah. So, yeah. So, he was stealing milk bottles and that he stood on the backs of the poor milkman to make his fortune. Um, <laughs> so, eventually, he also assembled, like, little kits, like, little meal kits, even though it was 1926. Wow. Yeah, I know. He's like, here's your spaghetti. Here's your Parmesan cheese. Here's your little thing. Um... In 1927, Maurice and Eva Wienar, the owners of a self-service grocery chain, decided that they would help him start canning his food and, like, producing it at scale so that he could actually, like, just do that instead of the restaurant. So that eventually very quickly turned into national distribution through their wholesale friends in the grocery store business. I don't even know how this works. You're just, like, Giving people spaghetti sauce in a bottle, a couple walks up to you and says, hey, listen, we have a small grocery store chain. And also, we happen to have national distribution brands. It must have been nice to be these people back then. It's a success story of, um, of you know, ingenuity and Knowing triumph someone, over the odds. Being in the right place at the right time. Um, in 1928, they had to open a factory to meet demand because everyone was going crazy for their little meals. Well, it was mostly for the spaghetti sauce at first. Then they made these complete pasta meals, which included a little can of grated Parmesan, a box of spaghetti, and tomato sauce, all in cellophane. Um, and their advertisement said that you could feed a family of three in 15 minutes for 28 cents, which is a heck of a deal. That, you can't beat that with a stick. <laughs> um, at the time, the company was the largest importer of Parmesan cheese in the United States. Isn't that wild? Yes, it is. I was actually just thinking about when you were talking about that they had parm. I was like, God, it must have been so different back then to get imported ingredients, you yeah. know, in the 20s. Like, I, like, yeah. what would you do if you didn't, like, you know what I mean? There was no calling Baldor and being like, what do you mean you don't have that? All right, I guess we'll call it Dairyland. It's like, all right, I guess I have to wait like four more months until another ship comes with it. I know. And the Wikipedia article didn't really get, I tried to find out a little bit more about like how they became the importer and also like how, because they served it already grated, which nowadays you kind of have to keep it stabilized if you're doing that. You know, like yeah. Parmesan cheese that's grated won't really last that long, um, like on a shelf, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I have no idea what they were doing. They were in cans, so maybe that helped. Um, 
But it is very, this is still even a different time. So in 1938, they moved production to Milton, Pennsylvania, because that's where the tomatoes were grown. So like, it wasn't even like it is now where they could just get like tomatoes from Pennsylvania and drive them to Cleveland. They right. weren't, it wasn't really like on that level. So they actually were like, well, it just makes sense to have the factory where the tomatoes are. Um, right. Which nowadays nobody would care. They'd just be like, well, just put a million fucking trucks on the road and who cares where the stuff comes from. Um, they use 20,000 tons of tomatoes every year. Um, they also grew their own mushrooms on location. So it was a different time. I guarantee you they don't grow their own mushrooms there now. Um, (laughs) not, not on purpose. And he put his name spelled out on the can because nobody could pronounce his name, even his own sales force. So he was like, here's how you pronounce my name. You stupid Americans. Um, and then... All of a sudden, World War II is happening. Your other favorite war. Um, Second favorite. He decides to (laughs) dedicate his factory to sea rations. So he turns over all production to sea rations for troops, eventually getting the gold star of excellence, which is the highest honor a civilian can receive from the Army. And that's why I have always avoided getting that, because I hate the Army. (laughs) 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 It would be so embarrassing if I had the gold star of excellence. Um, Totally. (laughs) <laughs> if you're a man, if you're like a, a pro men's rights person, this is definitely not the episode for you. All our other episodes are great, but we're like <laughs> anti-army, no men in yoga. Yeah. Um, so even though he had the gold star of excellence, he was not excellent. His company started struggling with cash flow. There were internal family struggles, which I could not find any more information about, which I must be like some dark secret because I couldn't find any info about what the internal family struggles were. Um, But he sold the company to Home Foods in 1946 for $5.96 million, which would be $48 billion today. (laughs) That's a lot of of macaroni. (laughs) (laughs) It's not really that much, but I like to make jokes, you know? Um, He stayed on as the spokesperson in all of the ads, and you can go on youtubes and check him out in those old ads and he has a very strong italian accent which i think is interesting that they let him be on tv um in the 1950s you know sweet of them to do that really his last television appearance was in 1979 and then he died in a nursing home in 1985 and his factory is still in milton pennsylvania and the whole reason I even started researching this guy is because I was originally going to do SpaghettiOs, which I thought was Chef Boyardee. But in fact, SpaghettiOs are Campbell's soup. Yeah. And they were invented to find some way to compete with Chef Boyardee, which I think is interesting. Um, fascinating. Very fascinating. Huh. Chef Boyardee. Oh, yeah. So when he died, he was worth $60 million American dollars. I wonder if there's an heir to the Boyardi family fortune that we well, can his get grand, involved with here. His granddaughter, his granddaughter wrote a book called, I don't know, Flavor Memories or something like that. <laughs> so I don't know if she had to write the book because she didn't get any money from her grandpa or if she was able to write a book because she didn't have to work. I don't know. <laughs> mm. All right. Well, that is a very interesting story. Let's take a quick, quick break. And we'll be right back with some more boiling lava hot pasta content. 
This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, Mm -hmm. incredible training resources are. They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development. You can pop over to the Quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, And so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University. Cheese State's three-part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry-level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter. The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University Field Guide. Um, And that is a three-volume resource. It's all digital, online. At the end of the course, students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate. Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter, like what is rennet and like why is this cheese so expensive and can pregnant people even eat cheese? At Cheese State, you're among experts, you're among scholars, you're among cheese lovers, and most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at CheeseStateUniversity.com. And we're back. <laughs> did I scare you? Did I frighten you and scare you, listener, Nicole? Anyone? Yes, I'm very frightened. Hmm. Um, well, I have a very interesting story today to tell you. Um, and I am going to read notes, but I feel like in a way I could almost tell this just from chatting about it because it's something that I've, you know, has been in in the pasta community <laughs> conversation <laughs> for a long time. Sorry, I was, that's a joke, but I couldn't even get through it as a joke. Um, okay, so one of my favorite pastas, and I hope that at the end of this episode for our top three, we'll talk about our favorite pastas and pasta dishes. One of my favorites, which is kind of a, I mean, a lot of people like it, but it's a divisive pasta, is pasta, la, or mostly spaghetti, but any kind of pasta, a la puntanesca, right? <laughs> yes. A la puntanesca. See? Yeah, no. they had that in See. Chef Boyardee cans for sure. <laughs> yes, anchovies, capers, all of all of it. Um, Nicole, do you like puttanesca? Yes, I like all the salty things. Yeah. Okay. So I love it. Um, sometimes you see tomatoes in there. That's not really the traditional way to make it. Traditionally, it's garlic, onion, um, or even really just garlic and uh, capers, olives, and anchovies. You know what I spaghetti. like? Is puttanesca pizza? Man, that's good. That's very good. I like a tuna puttanesca. Oh, yeah. That's good stuff right there. Yeah, that's nice. Um, and, I, and a little chili flake in there. I I like tomato in there, but I don't need it. I kind of think there's a nice thing to, like, just the, you know, capers, anchovies, and uh, garlic, a little chili flake. But um, there's, a, there's always, you know, conversation, I think, when you first start, like, knowing about Italian food or whatever, and puttanesca comes up, and everyone's heard something about why it's called that. So if you... Listener... Uh, your gentle ears are about to be pierced. If you don't know already, puttanesca kind of translates to whore sauce or... Slutty pasta. Slut sauce or, you know, <laughs> uh, sex work sauce, if you will. Right? Yes, I will. Okay, will. Um, so I had always kind of heard the, a couple of reasons why it was called that. One was that um, you know, 
uh, sex workers in brothels would make it so that they would entice uh, Johns to come in to the mm-hmm. to the brothel and uh, they would get clients. And another was kind of the opposite, that it would smell so pungent that it kind of kept people away, which I don't really understand how anyone could stay away from the smell of garlic and anchovies toasting. So that doesn't seem very reasonable. A lot of people don't like anchovies, though. That's true. But those people... I think for the most part have not had good anchovies. I think like there are anchovies that if they're cheap, if they've been left out, you can't like even keep an anchovy in the refrigerator if it's not covered in oil for more than a couple, like a day, because it'll start to just taste, I mean, it won't go bad, but it just will start to taste for lack of a better word, fishy, that Mm -hmm. that fishy taste that people don't like in anchovies is usually from them not being, like, stored properly or just being, like, bad quality. But, like, they're just salty, right? Yes, like, good just, anchovies are just salty. I think the people have a problem with them because they're little tiny fishes. You can see them, you know? Same thing with sardines. Yeah. yeah, I don't understand. But if you have – if you think you don't like anchovies, give them another try. Get a jar of good anchovies. Melt them with some butter and garlic. Make a banya cauda or toss we have a, like that. <laughs> we have a couple of dishes on my restaurant menu that have anchovies in them one is a cauliflower that has bandicoda on it um and capers it's very delicious um but we also have a bread appetizer that comes with like three kinds of butter one of which is the anchovy butter and Mm -hmm. so many indiana people tables will just leave that butter completely untouched like they don't even try it it just bumps me out great yeah Yeah. anchovy butter is one of the yummiest ways to enjoy anchovy. I mean, I like anchovies just like straight out of the can or mm-hmm. jar, but like um, anchovy butter is so good. Like on a steak, like melting yeah. on top of a steak, that's that's good eating or chicken or just whatever and anything. Anyway, I digress. So I'm going to talk about two things today. First, we're going to talk about uh, puntanesca, pasta puntanesca. And I got all my information from an article called The Mysterious Origins of Italy's Whore Pasta from Vice, <laughs> an article written by Giorgia Canarella. Um, so she says, according to Luca Cesari, the writer of the history of pasta in 10 dishes, the rest, like the origins are very unclear. Um, he seems to think, this guy Cesari, that it was, like, and also uh, of note, a lot of Italian pasta dishes, right, like carbonara, cacio e pepe, like date back, lasagna, like thousands and thousands of years, right? right? Yeah. Um, to the literal Romans. <laughs> to the literal motherfucking Romans. Um, this is not the case with Puccinesca. Puccinesca is kind of like a 20th century invention. What? Um, Yeah. Right. Well, so like the fir- it really was like popularized in like the 50s and 60s. Some people say maybe we have like mention of it back to the 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, but this guy says it was first described in cookbooks in the 50s and 60s. Um, although the references to pasta sauces featuring olives, capers and anchovies without tomato can be found from like the beginning of the century, but not called puttanesca. Sure. So, according to your favorite newspaper, Napoli Today, some <laughs> people say the Puccinesca was invented by a brothel owner outside of Rome, which would be strange because, you know, Puccinesca is usually attributed to Naples. They're not that, that far away. We're talking maybe like a three-hour car trip, so it's not really that big of a Yeah, but if you didn't have a car, that's a really long, like in the ancient times, if you're taking like, like a buggy there. Um, other people say that it was 
uh, invented by a brothel owner in Naples, Spanish Quarter, um, and others still that its name is a reference to the green, red, and purple of the sauce, all colors of the underwear worn by women working <laughs> at these brothels, <laughs> which I love. That's my favorite theory. So they didn't have any other colors of underwear? Or that's just like, no, that's how you know it. if someone is a sex worker is if their underpants are purple? Mardi Gras colored, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Good to know. And some people say it was invented by a sex worker named Yvette La Francese, who named it after her trade. Did she also invent Francese the bread? Uh, Francese the chicken dish. <laughs> My favorite chicken, chicken Francese. Mm. That's good. That's eaten good in the neighborhood. That's right. Uh, in the 19th century book, Cucina uh, Tetrino Practica, the theatrical uh, practical cuisine by Ipulio Calavacante, there's a mention of vermicelli with capers, olives, and anchovies, which is considered to be the foundation of the modern Neapolitan culinary tradition. So I have a hard time believing that nobody in a thousand years of Italy's culinary tradition ever mixed capers, olives, and anchovies together. Right. That's right? like very basic. It seems like something that like is kind of a cornerstone in a lot of other Neapolitan and Sicilian and Southern Italian cooking in general, right? Like right. these are core tenants of the of the culinary um kind of framework of and also it's like such strong flavors you know it it would be like you know if you didn't have a lot to work with it would make the meal seem more filling I guess yeah yeah exactly exactly and I mean like you see capers olives anchovies tomatoes together even in like Tuscan cooking and like cacciatore right those are Mm -hmm. so and that's a old ass recipe. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that people have been making this forever. And we're just kind of talking about when it kind of got into the cultural zeitgeist. Right. With the like, you know, the underwear the association of, uh, of sex work. So <clears throat> this writer for Vice says the earliest reference to Puccinesca sauce that they could find was in a 1932 food guide and wine, food and wine guide published by the Italian tourism organization. Um, Ooh, I would love to book, see that. Yeah, I know. And that'd be kind of cool. In the book, it was called Macaroni alla Marinara. And sometimes when you're in Italy, marinara, like here we have like marinara refers to like a tomato sauce, but Mm -hmm. um, it is not the case a lot of times in Italy, like marinara or like refers to kind of a sauce that's more um, like has anchovies and and capers in it. Garlic. Um, Okay. So in the 1977 book, La Cucina Neapolitana by Janine Carlola Francasoni, uh, she attributes the invention of the dish to a local painter named Eduardo Colucci, who would often invite friends over to the island he lived on. I think he lived on Ishtara, which is like off of Naples. I would like um, to live on an island. I know. Ishtara is pretty cool. It's very beautiful. Um, and he would make macaroni alla puttanesca. Um, a local newspaper from 2005 claims the sauce was actually created in the 50s by Colucci's nephew, an architect and... Uh, Ishkara jet sailor. His name was Sandro <laughs> Pitti. Jet and, sailor? Uh, that's what it's, Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say jet sailor? I meant I to say jet setter. Oh. Like an Irish setter. Okay. About jets. I was like, maybe he just is like seaplanes, right? I think I said sailor, but I, I didn't mean to. Thank you for correcting me. Well, I didn't mean to. I was like excited that it, he was. <laughs> right. That he had like a jet attached to a sailboat. Yeah. And yeah. And day. obviously that guy is so smart, he would have invented pasta. Exactly. He used um, 
He used to own a restaurant called Il Rancio Falone and said that one night uh, he improvised a quick dinner for guests throwing together some, quote, random shit or, or <laughs> quote, una puttanata, as you'd say in Italian, a common expression that literally translates to, quote, a whore's thing or action. Uh, okay. This theory is also supported by food writer Jeremy Parson, your favorite food writer. I love him. So... I guess to answer the question, there really isn't an answer to the question. It doesn't, nobody knows. It's called whore's pasta. It seems rude, but also kind of empowering in another way. Sure. Um, because it's delicious. And like if, you know, sex workers invented this delicious pasta, God bless them because we're lucky to have it. So good. Right. right. Also, I think it just seems like probably a phrase, a throwaway phrase was used and then it sort of became then I think this whole like legend grew up around it to just sort of explain it but like in Italian probably if you say that it's just like a normal thing to say exactly maybe not anymore but yeah they're always calling everyone whores which is why we like them now this prompted me to dig a little deeper into some other whores these ones originated in New York City right here in the 1990s nice and this is an article that is also from Vice, it's called the this pasta is the hookup. Oh, actually, no, this is from um, Refinery Twenty Nine. This pasta <laughs> is the hookup equivalent of engagement chicken by Cole Kasdan. What's engagement chicken? Engagement chicken was an, like another recipe. We should save that for another episode, perhaps. Okay. But another recipe like this one, I believe it actually came out afterwards. But basically, if you want your man to propose to you, you have to make this chicken. And oh, you make it, right. I've heard. Okay, I remember that. Right. Yeah. So, so we'll follow that up with another episode. Yes, next week on the chicken episode. <laughs> um, so this is a recipe for a dish called Come Fuck Me Penne Alla Vodka. Okay. Okay, I love it. I love penne alla vodka. Um, this recipe for come fuck me penne alla vodka has been circulating among single women in New York City since the mid-1990s. Interesting. So, according to New York City legend, ladies in the kitchen told this author, come fuck me penne alla vodka was a magical pasta dish that when prepared exactly according to the recipe, you have to be like very specific about the recipe, which is not hard because the recipe is very simple. Um, made men, made people putty in your hands, more specifically in your bed, desiring you like never before. <clears throat> so come fuck me, penny alla vodka isn't about putting a ring on it like the engagement chicken. It's about getting laid. Um, apparently this recipe was created by a person named Ida, uh, Ida Benjalkul, a friend of a friend of a friend. Um, someone she was dating made similar dish for her to the same result and was so good. She tried to replicate it, adding her own creative touches. So this is pretty much ripped from, I'm like the headlines. just reciting from this article because <laughs> it was so fun. The author goes of this article goes on to say, um, as she started the recipe with her friends, they reported back unexpected correlation between the penne and the sex. It was apparently really fucking mind blowing sex for all these women. Uh, that is ad libbed. Uh, they began using it as a sedu- seduction and reporting back with a 100% success rate. They shared it with friends who shared it with their friends and their friends and so on. And the recipe worked its way through single women of Manhattan. Now, I'm just picturing Carolyn Bissett making this for some reason. When I was, like, reading this, I am just, like, could only picture that, like, she met JFK Jr. and was like, 
I would like to invite you over for Pena Alvaca. <laughs> and it doesn't bother me at all that I look exactly like your ex, Daryl Hannah. Exactly. So, yeah, that's the type of women I picture, like, making this. Like, Parker Posey and the likes. Um, <laughs> Parker Posey. <laughs> like, it girls of the 90s. Right. Um. So she says, this author, the first time I made it was for this guy I just started dating. And you know when you have a headache and you take an Advil liquid gel and then two seconds later you're like, oh, wow, the headache's gone? The penne works that fast. It's a weird little advertisement for liquid for gels. liquid gels. And then she said, <laughs> the second time was with a guy I had already slept with, but the post-penne sex was a thousand times better than any sex we'd have before, which was odd because it really is a heavy dish and it kind of sits in your stomach. And then yeah. she goes and on to say- also you have garlic breath. Yeah, this is not something that I would, if I was trying to get laid on a date, that I would think to, like, make before. A big, heavy penny all about that. Be like, but I am going to try it. Come fuck me salad nicoise. Exactly. <laughs> Come fuck me shrimp cocktail and some bread and butter <laughs> and a glass of wine. Um, okay, so it didn't work with this third guy because she said she had, like, a weird thing with him. It was like, this guy in his, like, 40s who... They'd been like dating, but he'd always just have weird sleepovers and never fuck her. And I said he probably just had erectile dysfunction or something because she made it for him and it didn't work. So maybe, so it doesn't cure ED then? It doesn't cure ED, but if if you don't have ED, uh, then you're good to go and this is going to really turn you on. So here's the recipe. Now, it's poorly written and not very self-explanatory, but this is how it was like everywhere I looked it up. This is what the recipe says. Two cloves garlic, chopped or crushed. Four shallots, chopped. Put a little olive oil or butter in a pan. Brown shallots and garlic. After browning, add one-third cup vodka to garlic and shallots until vodka evaporates. Now, folks, I'm going to put a little note here. As a chef, if you are going to make this come fuck me penny on vodka, be careful when you put vodka in your pan over the fire or it's going to light on fire, which is not really a big deal, but might scare you. <laughs> you know, if you just put vodka in a pan over. If you also vodka, drink a third vodka. a cup of vodka beforehand, you'll be fine. Yes, exactly. Um, and then you add one short fat can um, of crushed tomatoes what? to the shallots, garlic, and vodka. It doesn't short. say like what kind of tim- like. Oh, it says crushed tomatoes. Oh, anyway. So, and then keep low to medium heat, stirring. Add basil, salt, pepper to taste. Um, there's an issue here, which is that penne vodka has cream in it. Right. And that is not listed here. So What? <laughs> no one will fuck you if you don't put cream in the pasta, okay? And then you've got to put some, like, parm on top, too. Yikes. Or pecorino, at the very least. There's no cream in it, I guess, because of the 90s, because everything was low fat. I don't understand how anyone would enjoy eating penne vodka with no cream. It seems criminal. <laughs> also, I just was waiting for someone yesterday and so I had some time on my hands and I instead of like reading a novel or something I just went on instagram.com and right. on Bon Appetit's Instagram they're like how vodka's penne alla vodka became America's favorite pasta dish during lockdown and it describes oh, Gigi Hadid going on TikTok or something and making it and then that's made everyone really into it all over again they did not say whether or not it was sex-based for that moment in time. But just so you know, it's still in the, the zeitgeist. But it, it did use cream in, in the Gigi Hadid version. So. Oh, my God. Amazing. So should we talk about our top three? Should we do our top three favorite? Should we do? Okay. 
we have a tiny bit of time. Should we do our top three favorite pasta shapes and then also our top three pasta dishes? Sure. Because they're different, right? Like a pasta dish is different than a pot, like just a pasta shape you like. I don't know if I have like a favorite pasta shape. I guess I do like some. Yeah. Okay. We can do that. Okay. Go ahead. I like macaroni. Nice. I like. What's the the orecchiette? Oh, little oh, little tiny ears. And I like spaghetti, like or I like angel hair. You know, like really skinny, <gasps> skinny you like spaghetti. Angel hair? You're the yeah, only person I know that likes. It's that. from the '90s. It's like also my childhood. My mom would always make angel hair. I have no idea why. And then she would just put like regular prego on it, but it was good. Yeah. And she somehow um, managed to like not make it stick together. I don't know what she was doing there, but she didn't know how to cook it all. But then my favorite dishes are. Spaghettios, which is also a pasta shape. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> what is that shape? Anne- it's Anelli. Anelli, great. Liza Anelli. And yes. <laughs> I love Cacio e Pepe. Just so mm, simple, so delicious. Um, and I just, I do love a regular old spaghetti with marinara sauce, like a. Just like a nice... Yeah, like a pomodoro. Pomodoro, very simple. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I like that too. So my favorite shape of all time, hands down, no doubt about it, is spaghetti. I love spaghetti. There's no comparison. If I make pasta at home, I have like a bunch of shapes here. It takes a lot for me to ever cook something other than spaghetti. Like, to me, that's the most delicious. Um I like radiatore, the like little mm-hmm. radiators. I love those too. Really delicious. Those are good in like pasta salads too. Yeah, they're really good. Delicious in a pasta salad. And then as far as like a fresh pasta or like a non-dry pasta, um, I love cavatelli. Mm, I like ricotta yeah. cavatelli especially. That's yeah, it's so good. Um, and then my top dishes, I guess I would have to say... That I love, love, love a good carbonara. Like a really mm. good carbonara. Especially if you go somewhere good in Rome, you get it with like big crispy pieces of guanciale in it. That's, that's amore. <laughs> <laughs> that's amore. Um, I think number two would be spaghetti vongole, like clams, mm. white clam sauce. I do so love a clam That's good. And I mean, but it's good. when it's good, it's good. Personally, I may have said this on the show before. I don't like spaghetti with clams in with the clams in the shell I like them oh, steamed yeah. out of the shell chopped up and tossed in because I think it's way more enjoyable that way right so you don't have to pick it apart I don't want to like stick my finger in the pasta and then try to make a perfect bite just you know plus I actually like chopped up clams better than a whole clam I think it makes more of a sauce yeah um and then my number one favorite pasta I would be in agreement with you about a simple pomodoro like spaghetti pomodoro (laughs) really any shape with just tomato sauce and parmigiano or pecorino and olive oil but I make something at home that I really love and it can it kind of well I mean I guess I love spaghetti limone too I can't oh I love that too. that's so good um but I feel like the most enjoyable thing is it can be, it can vary. I think it's really great with like a bean or like a chickpea or a lentil featured mm-hmm. as like the main thing in the sauce. So let's say we have like leeks or shallots and uh, chickpeas and some garlic and like tomato, right? You cook yeah. that down into kind of like a sugo or whatever, like a ragu. 
And then you toss it with spaghetti. I feel like spaghetti or some kind of twirl shape is really crucial here. But then the piece de resistance is that you take arugula. I like red onions that have been kind of like marinating and some like lemon juice. So they're, you know, still flavorful, but they're not like really crunchy and yeah. too much. Um, <clears throat> lemon juice, onion, arugula, black pepper, and like cheese, like Parmesan or Parmigiano or like Pecorino. And you put the arugula salad with all that lemony, yummy dressing and olive oil on top of the pasta. Yeah. And you like twirl it into the pasta as you eat and it kind of melts into it, becomes part of the sauce, super lemony. Like to me, there's, that's like last meal. Like that's my favorite thing ever. Yeah. I think you made something like that for me before. It's so delicious. It's very, very, very satisfying. So I really like that. And, you know, surprisingly enough, even though my, I have a lasagna business, I yeah. don't. Who cares about it? I don't, it's not that I don't like lasagna. I just never eat it. I would, I don't know the last time I had lasagna must have been like years ago. Mm-hmm. It's not. Well, it's like, like a casserole. Yeah. It's not, I, I'm not as much for like a filled pasta, like a ravioli or, I mean, I like, I don't get me wrong. I like yeah, ravioli. I, I love a tortellini from the grocery store, you know, just throw yeah. it in there real quick. That's fun. Pesto. It is fun. It's great. I just, it, it wouldn't be like, for me, I'm always, I kind of like prefer dry pasta to fresh yeah. pasta. And like a simple kind of acidic sauce. Yeah. So fun. What a fun, unexpectedly fun episode. Started off boring, ended kind of boring, but you know, there was a middle. <laughs> yeah. There the, was a middle. the pendulum. The pendulum of life. Exactly. Folks, thanks for tuning in. Uh, and this has never been more applicable. Asta la pasta. <laughs> Bye. Life's a Banquet is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.